Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name again this morning. And I too would like to welcome all of you here, and especially you, you folks that aren't here regularly. We welcome you too. Glad to have you here. Turn with me to John 12. I have been um, sporadically going to this book for some lessons we can learn in John. And I would like to focus on actually just two verses here this morning out of uh, John 12. To catch us up a little bit, let's get some of the backstory. It's been a while since we've been here. If you remember, um, in the previous chapter, Lazarus had been raised from the dead. That had been quite an event for the folks. And um, then starting into chapter 12, we have the story of uh, Jesus having dinner with uh, the folks at Bethany there, Lazarus and his sisters. We have the account of um, the Mary anointing Jesus with the spikenard. We have many people coming to visit Jesus uh, in verse 9 of chapter 12. But it says they came to see Lazarus about as much as they came to see Jesus. They wanted to, wanted to see this man who had been raised from the dead. We have the uh, chief priest being a little upset with this in verse 10 and consulting how they might put Lazarus to death because of it. Then the next day we have what we know of as the triumphal entry. And we have the ire of the Pharisees raised in verse 19 when it says, Perceive ye how we prevail. Nothing. The entire world is going after this man. Complete frustration. Then in verses 20 to 37, we have these Greeks that came and wanted to have a chat with Jesus. And we have Jesus, basically, uh, we don't know how much interaction was took place between the Greeks and Jesus, but we do have this, this teaching of Jesus on the cost of discipleship. And it seems like as, as the sermon progressed, there was, uh, he ended up addressing more than just the Greeks. And um, we have, as often was the case, at least in John's book here when he writes these accounts, we have these, this group of people that was listening to Jesus finding themselves divided up into different groups. Because of what they heard. In verse 37 it says, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. So we had one group that it didn't seem to matter what happened, what Jesus said or what he did. They were closed. Weren't going to listen, no matter what. So that was that group. But there was a second group that we want to focus on here this morning. That is a unique group and... Probably, if we're honest, we probably can all identify with this a little bit at some point in our lives, having this issue. So I'm going to read verses 42 and 43. It says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. That seems like a, a wonderful thing here. We have some people that actually believe on Jesus. Now, if the verse stopped there, we'd say, well, how great. But there's a but. It says, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. And of course, John, as he often does, he gives some, some explanation about this in verse 43. He says, 
for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. I'd like to speak to you this morning a little bit about God's approval versus man's praise. Approval is a big deal in today's world. It's called ratings. It's important to the field of presidential candidates that we have in today's world that they have some popular approval of men here in the next year. It's going to be vitally important that they can pussyfoot around as many issues as they can to seek as many accolades as they can for men. The long and the short of it. If you're going to be president, you're going to have to try to seek men's approval. There's a thing called TV ratings. It's really important if you're going to uh, run a show that you have some people actually watch the show. Otherwise, nobody's going to run advertisements and yada yada. It's pretty important to have men's praise. Our president, or, or I should say our one-time one president, George Bush, young George, had big approval following the 9-11 event. If you remember, he actually hit the 80 percentile range in approval of, of people's, uh, of his job approval in this country right shortly following 9-11. If I remember right, and I, I didn't research this, but I think it's probably the highest approval rating that any president ever enjoyed, ever. Now, that didn't last long until the end of his office. He was probably... A, about as deplorable as, as it can get. But for a short time, he certainly enjoyed men's praise. We rate vehicles. We rate farm equipment. We look for approval. Preachers and teachers struggle with this. They want men's approval, and so they will cater to itching ears because they want approval. I believe it is fair to say that any person that is willing to call himself a Christian would quickly concur that he wants God's approval. That's important to him. But I think it's also fair to say, and I don't think Christians are exempt from this, that we all have a desire to be respected by people. We want people to like us. We don't want to be a burr in anybody's saddle. At least most of us don't. We want to be respected and appreciated. We like when people respect our opinions and our choices. It's interesting that uh, when I made my move from Pennsylvania to Minnesota, there were some people that thought I was pretty silly. And they felt that it was their job to tell me so. And so I, 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 I heard some of that. I heard more than I cared to hear about how unwise that was to move out here to the blankets of nowhere and freeze to death. And I was reminded of this a few weeks ago when I was at the New Haven Mennonite Church and I met up with a man that I never, never had met before. Asked me where I, where I was from and I said Minnesota and there was this instant pushback. Instant. Minnesota. What are you in Minnesota for? So we freeze to death. I mean, on and on and on. I finally realized it was going to get nowhere, so I just agreed with him. I said, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it's this constant reminder that I can't always please people, I guess. 
I would say, though, that on the flip side, it is not wrong to attempt to fit into humanity in a way that isn't completely obnoxious. That much, I would say, is okay, as, as much as we can. And I think if we were totally honest with ourselves, we would be surprised if we would take into consideration how many of life's choices, whether we realize it or not, part of the decision-making process is, what will people think of this? But I can tell you this, if it is our exclusive goal to be approved to people, we will live a miserable and frustrating existence. We just will. The story of the man and the boy coming home from town with the donkey and the boy's riding and the man's leading is a parable that tells it well. They did everything from the man riding the donkey, the boy riding the donkey, them carrying the donkey, everything. And every time they did it, somebody didn't like it. So they finally wised up, realized we will never get total approval for what we do. Let's observe just a little bit here the, the verses that we're reading. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the chief rulers. Who are the chief rulers? Most likely they were the elites of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, the religious ruling body of the Jews. And it says here that they actually believed. Now, when I read that, I was like, now, is there something in the Greek that I'm not getting here? Does that word believe mean, like, believe, like I believe, Jesus? Just did a little research, and I have to go by, you know, with other people's, um, uh, what they say, because I have no idea. I can't read Greek, so I, I have to go with somebody else. But as far as I can tell, this word believed here is indeed a true belief. All right? they, they believed. They, they, it wasn't just some mental assent. They truly believed that Jesus was who he said he was. But they evidently must have kept it a very classified secret. Because if you would turn back to John 7, there when the Pharisees sent the officers to somehow trap Jesus, and they came back just stunned by what they heard, they accused those officers right away and they said, what, you believe? Really? You believe? He said, what, is there any ruler? Can you point to me any ruler that believes on this man? Evidently, this was a classified secret enough that the Pharisees didn't know it. Because they actually, they, they insinuated in a way that they had no idea that there would be any ruler that would actually believe in Jesus. I think it proves the tremendous influence that the Pharisees had on these people. It also carried a stigma of being put out of the synagogues. These, these Pharisees could inflict this punishment upon, I guess, whoever they wished to inflict it upon. And we know from our previous story when we looked at uh, the, the blind man and, and how his Parents waffled and whiffled and you couldn't nail them down because it said they feared being put out of the synagogue. At the end of the day, whatever the case was, these chief rulers loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And to take a public stand for Christ, to risk the wrath of those Pharisees, to ruin their position in society, they thought was not worth it. 
They would rather have the miserable existence of knowing what was right and not practicing it. It's ironic that uh, a few chapters later, Jesus says that a mark of a true disciple is that they will put you out of the synagogues. That will be part of it. And it's also ironic that the very ruling body that would condemn Jesus to death, these chief rulers were very likely a part of that body, that Sanhedrin. And it speaks of the moral cowardice of, that, of these particular chief rulers. So you say, why? Why would a person do this? Why would a person concede or, or, or flip and flop and want the praise of men more than the praise of God? Can you imagine? Why would you, do, why would you make that trait? Why would you waffle about that? I think at the end of the day, the praise, the opinions, and the glory of men is something we can reach out and feel. I can get a pretty good sense for how much you're with me this morning just by looking at you. That's the way it is. I, 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 want, I want to feel your respect. I want that. And I can, it's palpable. I can reach out and I can touch it. But you know, the, the God of heaven is just an invisible thing to us. It, it, it's not right here. We can't see it. And so we're willing to trade for what we can palpate for what we can't. The glory of man is nearer, more obvious, and has more to do with the tangible, sensuous advantages than does divine approval at a given moment. And that's exactly where these people found themselves this, this morning in today's reading. The bottom line is, if you and I are going to be of any use to this world, and of any use to the kingdom of God, we cannot go looking for the approval of men. It will not work. We must seek God's approval, but we cannot seek the approval of men. That leads us to the question, is the approval of God and the approval of men mutually exclusive? Can you never have both? Well, here's another interesting part of this, of this um, question. It is actually possible to have both. And the Bible has a few illustrations of that particular thing happening, and I'm just going to run through them. If you would go back to the book of Exodus and you would read the first few chapters of Exodus, there's a couple of times, three times exactly, where it says the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Three times it says that. So they had the favor of the Lord and they had the favor of the people. In 1 Samuel 16 to 18, we know that Daniel, I'm sorry, David, was a man that had the Lord's approval. We know that. He was a man after God's heart. But he also was very popular with Saul for a while because of his music. And he was extremely popular with the people because of his, of his uh, conquest over Goliath. So he had the approval of God, the approval of men. Esther, same thing. It talks about her obtaining favor in the sight of all that looked upon her. Whenever she was in that palace there and the, and the time was approaching that she was going to pr present herself to the king, it says that uh, she had ob obtained favor. So again, favor before God and man. One of, I'm sure your mind probably went to this one immediately. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature 
and in favor with God and man. Acts 2, the new church, very, very young, just a few weeks old actually. And it says, the new converts continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church, such as should be saved. The reason, folks, that these people experienced both is because they went seeking for the favor of God and God gave them, gave them the approval of men. Every time it says the Lord gave it to them. They didn't go seeking for it. It was given to them. I'm reading a book on um, the uh, history of the Washington County, Maryland, and Franklin County, Pennsylvania Mennonites. And I was reading through the section on the, uh, some, of the, um, some of the folks and what they um, were against whenever, they, uh, whenever World War I came around. And I'm going to read to you something here that, that brings out a modern example of having favor with God and man. So there was a man, two men by the name of Isaac Bear and Jonas Hagee that were brought up in the first lottery as, as the draftees for the first run of recruits in World War I. So within 24 hours, they had to report to Camp Meade there near Baltimore. And the first day they were there, they were interviewed and challenged by a colonel that was in charge of that particular camp. After he was done, they stepped out of the colonel's office, and they were kind of there trying to gather their wits, and they were approached by a major on horseback. And here's where I'll just read it. It says, noticing their clothes and that they were not dressed in uniform, the major thundered, who are you? Isaac answered, we are known as Mennonites. Mennonites, who are they? The officer roared. Bear responded, we are people who believe it is better to receive injury than to afflict it, inflict it. The major responded, young man, I want you to know that nobody will escape service in this war. By this time, Bear had lost his composure because of the events of the few, last few days. And he was now in tears and he, did, he responded thus. Lest it be misunderstood for mere stubbornness, I will not say bluntly that I will not fight, while that is really what I mean. But rather I will say that I cannot conscientiously train to kill my fellow men. I am here against my will. I am in your hands and at your mercy. The story goes on to say that deflated by Isaac's meek response, the major replied, No young man... You are not in my hands at all, but in the hands of President Wilson and Secretary of War Baker. Your case will be decided by them. But I think that anyone taking a stand in the spirit that you do should realize no difficulty. Favor with God and man. Are there any examples of people who tried to please men and displeased God? We know that's true as well. A few examples of these people. Abraham, in an attempt to save his skin with the folks in Egypt, said to Sarah, tell him, tell him you're my sister. 
Pharaoh's house is plagued. Abraham's lie is found out. Aaron tells Moses, whenever Moses comes off the mountain and sees the people running wild and naked, he says, Aaron, what's going on? Aaron says, I don't know. The people made me do it. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned and transgressed the commandment of the Lord. But I feared the people and obeyed their voice. We talked about Balaam in our Sunday school lesson. He tried to curse Israel and please Balak to make a few cents. Peter says he loved the wages of unrighteousness. Peter himself, in an attempt to save face and skin, denies Jesus until the cock crows. Peter didn't learn his lesson completely, and in Galatians 2, Paul tells the story of how Peter again succumbs to the fear of men, distances himself from the Gentile Christians, and it says that Paul withstood the man to his face. Peter, you're trying to please men. Something, a common factor in all this is fear of men. That goes right back to our story again. It was fear. Fear was the driver. Proverbs 29:25 says this, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. God has not given us the spirit of fear. All right. Let's looking, look at some reasons that people will pass on God's approval. It boils down to one word. It's cost. What will it cost me? Here's some costs. A person seeking God's approval will always find himself rowing upstream against cultural norms. That's where you will find yourself. And that's put mildly. It's exactly where these chief priests were. It was not culturally acceptable to do what they knew they should do, and they could not bring themselves to do it. We may as well admit that sometimes societal pressure comes long and hard to conform to certain behaviors. And almost always it will involve normalizing things that are dead wrong. Jesus says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many, many it be that go in thereat. Folks, the broad way is well-traveled. Well-traveled. And there are too many wimps in the world that do not have the guts to go the narrow way. They want to be in the crowd. And if the crowd is moving a particular direction, it's not hard to go with that crowd. I had a conversation with a man just last week. And he's, he was catching me up on his son. His son has had some real issues lately. And he was catching me up on his, on his son's life there. And, and he mentioned to me how that his son and his girlfriend and their baby are now living with him and his wife. And he knew. He knew where, what I would think of that. And so he immediately said, everyone does it. So why everyone does it? I said, wait a minute. Not everyone does it. That is not true. Most people do it, but not everyone. I said, it comes down to choices. 
And you and I can have the opportunity to make the same choices. But the Broadway is so enticing. Mark, mark my word, when one attempts to abound in the faith, as Paul calls us to, and follow God closely, that will take you to the cultural edges of society, and you will not be well favored. Another reason that a person will pass on God's approval, it will many times cause you to stick out like a sore thumb. Imagine, imagine if these chief rulers would have been ostracized outside of the synagogue. Everybody's going into the synagogue and there's the chief rulers, they're not coming in. That's pretty conspicuous. They're not showing up at church. They couldn't do it. Think of all the outliers of society that the Bible gives us examples of. The three Hebrews standing tall. I cannot I can only imagine what they went through when they did that. I have a picture at home uh, during is a picture of a of a crowd in Germany during World War II and Hitler is giving his tirade, as he often did. And it has this entire crowd doing a one-hand salute to Hitler. Except one man, one man in that crowd stands like this. What kind of power does that take? It's conspicuous as all get out. When the Israelites were running wild that day during the Golden Calf Party, Moses had all he could take. And it says that he ran to the entrance of the camp and he called out. He said, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. And it says, all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. Conspicuous, conspicuous. Peter says, if you be reproached, if you stand out for the name of Christ, happy are you. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Another reason a person may not stand up for Jesus is because he will very likely experience loneliness. Elijah felt lonely after he had that big carnal event. He felt lonely. Job felt lonely. His wife and his three friends gave him grief. The prophet Jeremiah felt lonely. He says this in chapter 15. He said, I sat not in the assemblies of mockers. This is a conversation he's having with God. He's addressing God here. He said, neither did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand. For thou hast filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuseth to be healed? Wilt thou altogether unto me be as a liar and as waters that fail? He's to the end of himself. He said, I'm alone, God. I've done every, all this stuff because I'm standing up for you, and it feels like you're not even here anymore. He experienced loneliness. Paul did at his first court trial. He said, all men forsook me. John on the Isle of Patmos he said he was alone because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And Jesus himself knew what that was like. 
It says in Mark 14:50 that they all forsook him. All forsook him. Loneliness is one of the worst things a person can experience. That's why a prisoner, even a prisoner, dreads solitary confinement. One of the worst things a person can experience. And it is no doubt, my heart goes out to these chief priests. I will admit my heart goes out to them. They would have been ostracized by their familiar friends. They would have been. Are you and I ready to experience some loneliness? I am convinced that an occasional bout of that feeling will be part of the cost of God's approval. All right. What are some things now that we can do that the Bible is clear that we will have to do to gain God's approval? I won't spend a lot of time on this one, but the number one thing, bar none above all else, the number one thing that we have to do to gain God's approval, and that is gather to the Lord's side. Receive Jesus as your Savior. If you are not there, you do not have God's approval. Now, I don't have a particular verse for that, but that is the tenor of Scripture. There it is. God is not willing that any should perish. Join the kingdom of God. I have one for the children here. What in the Bible does it say is well-pleasing to God? It's for the children. Anybody answer me on that one? What is well-pleasing to God? I see grins that I don't think anybody wants to say, and that's all right. That's a big crowd here. Obedience to parents. Colossians 3.20. Children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. The groundwork must be laid early. Let me just say that. If children do not learn to obey their parents and please the Lord in that way, chances are they will never learn how to please the Lord later in life. Very good chance. Another thing that will receive God's approval 2 Timothy 2, very familiar verse. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The NIV says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. So what do we take away? We need to be a workman that has a great spiritual work ethic and is committed to selfless service to God. Folks, we need this. Am I doing my best for God? Am I giving it all I got? Can that be said of me? Can that be said of you? Or is there more that I could be doing? I also want to emphasize the selfless service part of this. We're not going to take the time today, but if you get the chance, read Revelation 2, 1 to 4. I was struck by that this week when I read through that. It's a letter to the church of Ephesus. And Jesus starts that letter out saying, you're doing all these good things. You are a very zealous church. You've got a great church program. You do not tolerate heresy. You suffer persecution patiently. And you think, wow, this church at Ephesus, it's where it's at. But he says, you're lacking one thing. You've left your first love. 
We have all this program and methodology, but we had left out the love of service. The love of just wanting to serve the Lord evidently was gone. Evidently. Let's not be like that. Let's be willing to be to spend and be spent and to selflessly serve God out of a heart of love. All right, what else can we do to please God? An obedient life that is always striving for more and better. It's a lot like the last one. Listen to this verse out of Jeremiah 32, and it says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I should just say the context is here. He's talking about the return of the children of Israel after they had endured their captivity. To me, it has some overtones of the church age as well. It says, okay, and I will, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, and they shall not depart from me. Now, this is the phrase I want. Yea, I will rejoice over them that do good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and my whole soul. Rejoice over them that do good. Paul in Colossians 1.9 says that he thanks God for the example that the Colossians had been of the faith. And he concludes like this. He says, For this cause also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. 1 John, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Are we pressing toward the mark? Are we doing those things? Are we walking worthy? Or are we resting on our laurels? Another thing we can do to please God is to be cheerful, generous givers. And you know where I'm going for this one. 1 Corinthians 9, 7. Do not give grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. In Philippians 4, Paul writing to the church there says, But I have all and I abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Hebrews 13, Do good and communicate, for with such sacrifices God is well-pleased. There's something that stands out to me here. It's referred to as a sacrifice. It's referred to as something we tend to forget or we procrastinate. God wants spontaneous, cheerful givers. We love the old stories of the widow's might, Mary and her bottle of spikenard, the widow with her bottle of oil, the Shunammite in her bedroom. Is there any significance to the fact at all that all these people were women? I don't know, just a thought. It's interesting. Maybe we men need to work on this a little harder. It did strike me, how do we view the offering basket that goes around every Sunday? Is it just like we chuck it in there and say, well, bye-bye, I'll never see that again? Or do we view it as that investment that we must make to the kingdom of God? And trust me, these things will come back. Someday we'll be rewarded for that. That's a promise we have in the Bible. We will be rewarded for what we give here. 
All right. What else? Another thing that pleases God is a shameless defense of the gospel. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, but we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who trieth the hearts. And to the church at Rome, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Are you ashamed to identify with the gospel? Are you ashamed to practice it? It's not popular. It's becoming increasingly unpopular. It will continue to be so. But the church, or I'm sorry, the world, is full of enough of easy-speaking, sleepy-eyed gospel preachers. We don't need more of those. We need people that understand the gospel and are willing to put it in shoe leather. That is a shameless defense of the gospel. And the world is in desperate need for that. The last one I'm going to end up with, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter 3. I was struck with this one. First Peter 3, very, very familiar portion of Scripture. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 4. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, that they may also be won. Also, I'm sorry. They also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold and of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which, in the, which is in the sight of God of great price. You know, we often use this particular passage as a compelling reason for becoming clothing. We go there for that. And that's okay. It's there. But what we fail to emphasize is the meek and the quiet spirit. That is really what we're talking about here, friends. We're talking about an adornment of meekness and quietness. Peter's telling these, these people here, he says, you can have one or the other. He said, you can either attempt to draw attention to yourself through what you throw in your body, or you can, you can try the meek and quiet spirit. And he said, both of them are going to get attention. And in fact, he makes the argument that there is a compelling reason to think that simply the, it talks in verse 1, it says, without word, without saying a thing, an unbeliever can be brought to believe simply through the adornment of a meek and a quiet spirit. That struck me. He's making the argument that that is a gospel witness. That's what it is. Going back to our friends here, you know, the chief rulers, um, I, I, I would, I'm going I'm to guess that they fell in the same category. We know the Pharisees fell into this camp of taking everything that was worthwhile and um, completely construing it and, and messing with it till it totally had lost its meaning. And on this particular point, they did the very same thing. 
Let's notice Jesus' warnings in two different verses, one in Luke, one in Matthew. I'm going to read them to you. It says, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love the greetings in the marketplaces and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms in the feats. And, and then I'm going to go right into Matthew 23. It says, But all their works they do to be seen of men. They want the praise of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. Now, now let's follow this through. The, these people were actually doing the right thing. All right, let, let's stick with me here. In, in Numbers 15, Moses actually says this to the children of Israel. He says, um, this is God speaking to Moses. He says, speaking to the children of Israel, and bid them that they make fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe. Now listen to this that they may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that they seek not after their own heart and your own eyes, which, after which you used to go a-whoring, that ye may be remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. So what did these Pharisees do? And I, and I have a feeling the chief rulers probably were right there too because they loved the, you know, the praise of the Pharisees. So I'm going to make a guess they did the same thing. But they took this actual command of God about these borders and these fringes and they blew it all out of proportion. They made them bigger. It says, Jesus says, you enlarged them. You made them bigger. And you made them bigger not to please God. You made them bigger so that men would see you and it would think, wow, what a, what a guy. You know, I mean, he, he's, 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 really, he's really got something to him here. I don't know, this is, this is a talk in itself, and I want to just condense it very, very um, concisely. How do you codify a meek and quiet spirit? Can I codify a meek and quiet spirit? You know the answer to that. Two, two letters. I cannot. I cannot write to you up here on board that this will define a meek and quiet spirit. But it's like many other things. You know it when you see it. You do. Now, I say that to say this. We have made a valid attempt to, in a, we, we've attempted, as I've said before, in, in, in the, in the um, to, to, to keep from, uh, how do I want to say this? I'm afraid I'm going to say it wrong, and I'm going to be misunderstood. Conservative Mennonite churches, in order to rein in unbecoming clothing, have codified some things. All right, We know that, and, and there's some validity to that. However, the problem we have is that you can take the code, and you can adorn that thing in anything besides a meek and a quiet spirit. You flat can. All right? So then you have people that come out on two different ditches. They say, forget the code. It doesn't work anyway. It actually works against what we actually want. Or you can go over here and say, well, we're just going to make more codes. We're going to see if we can't ramp this thing up. Both of them are a ditch. All right? Folks, I just plead with you. You will know when you are following a meek and a quiet spirit. And everyone else will, will too. There are seven things that God hates. And the one that tops the list is a proud look. 
a problem. And I know that too. And you do too. You know when you see someone that has a proud look. There's something that I think is interesting in this passage. It says that in the sight of God, a meek and a quiet spirit is of great price. What must a great price be to the Lord God? I'm beyond words. I don't know where to go. What is a great price? The only thing I go back to is the argument Peter's giving here is he said, by this meek and quiet spirit, you have a really good chance of winning souls. We know that a soul was worth more than the entire world. This must be why God puts that on such a pedestal, that meek and quiet spirit. I will say this. One of the most distasteful things to me, and I'm going to guess to you as well, is to see the sons and daughters of God dressed in a way that fits the code but is not worn in a way that fits a meek and a quiet spirit. That's an abomination. That is an abomination. Psalm 149.4 says this, For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people, and he will beautify the meek with salvation. There's one man that the Bible says that he pleased God. Who was that? Who pleased God? It says he pleased God. Who was that man? Enoch. Enoch, thank you. Enoch, in in the Hebrew writer says in 11.5, it says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. You know, I would hope that the epitaph on my gravestone would be just that. This man pleased God. And when I read that, I was like, can I ever attain Enoch? Can I? How do I walk with God? What's that look like? Well, I know this much. When you walk with somebody, you're right there. You're kind of right in that presence. You're lockstep with where that person's going. You're understanding that person or attempting to. You're identifying with that person. You're not lagging behind that person. I also wondered how much scoffing did Enoch have to put up with because of his walk with God? Can you imagine? I just bet it was pretty intense. Nobody can walk that closely with God and, and, and miss that part of it. Do you think there was anybody that said about him, the guy's just too heavenly to be of any earthly good? I think Enoch had such a relationship with God that what people thought about him was Background noise. Background noise to that man. The man continued to walk with God. And he was not one day because God had translated him. Friends, who do you want to identify with this morning? Enoch or the chief rulers? The choice is yours and mine.